So if you haven't yet turned to Colossians 1, 21 through 23, you can go ahead and do that. And we'll just recap a little bit of where we have been. So we had looked at 15 through 20. And in 15 through 20, here is, here is Paul giving the Colossians this beautiful, exultant view of who Jesus is. In the verses leading up to that, he talked about how God the Father had brought them from the kingdom of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then he spends these next five verses breaking down who is this son, the one who is able to redeem us. And he gives us just this absolutely incredible picture of who Jesus is. And that is so important, not only just for these, the Colossians, but this is important for us too, because often what happens is we, we walk into a passage or we walk into church or our own study at home, and we have this idea in our head of who Jesus is. It might be a Sunday school or a Good News Club or an Awana idea of who Jesus is, and that's fantastic. That's an excellent start. But just like any good relationship, it keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. And that's how it should be with Jesus, too. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. And we're never fully going to understand all of who he is until we are with him face to face. But this passage gives us an excellent picture of just all that Jesus is. So here Paul is. He's, it's almost as if he's gazing up, looking at Jesus as he's describing who Jesus really is. And because of who Jesus really is, a true picture of who he is, which is helping to break down some false ideas that had crept into the church because of some uh, Gnostic scholars of their day. We'll talk more about them in just a little bit. They were bringing in false ideas, half-truths about who Jesus was or who he wasn't. Paul gives them this incredible view of who Jesus is. And now we're going to shift our gaze from who Jesus is Paul's coming back down to who the Colossians were and who they are. So let's go ahead and let's read one, uh, chapter 1, 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has now been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. As we're about to jump into this passage, let's take a look at a character study real quick. So we're going to have two, two different uh, people we're going to talk about here. So first person, and we'll compare it to the second. This first person was born in the 1700s. Born into a Christian family, grew up having gone to church, great, great upbringing, but somewhere in there, totally wandered away from the Lord, just totally walked away from all of it. Got pressed into the Navy, didn't want to be there, and made it very, very clear he did not want to be there to the point where they finally just left him somewhere. He got dropped off into slavery in a foreign country, found a way to get out of that, get back to England came back to England, and not only had he been a slave at one point in his life, but he became a part of the slave trade himself. And he became, eventually, worked his way up and became a captain of a ship, and was the vilest of captains. He was an absolute monster of a man. The worst example you could possibly think of, 
of a slave captain, slave ship captain. He was just a horrible person. So there's the first person. Second person also grew up in a Christian home. He also grew up with a great family. He did walk away from the Lord in his middle years, but came back to the Lord. He came back to the Lord and spent the rest of his days leading a church, quietly serving him, serving the Lord, absolutely amazed at God's grace. He fought hard to see the end of the slave trade in England. And at the end of his days, he was so enthralled with just the the amazing grace of God that he wrote a song. He wrote Amazing Grace. And by now you know who I'm talking about. It's John Newton. What a difference in his life. Same, we're talking about two different people, same man. It's really two different people from who he was to who Jesus made him to be. What a difference to see what was before, his old reality, to see this new reality because of what Jesus did in his life. What a stark contrast. Paul's going to help us to look at that here in Colossians 21 through 23. So we are into a new reality, but we need to know who we were, and and Paul's going to lay out very clearly to the Colossians who they were. And bear with me through this first point, because it's going to feel pretty dark, and it's going to feel pretty bleak as we look back at who we were, but we're not going to stay there. Looking at point one and who we were is just going to make it that much much more glorious when we burst out into the light of who we are because of what Jesus has done for us. So... Point number one, who you were, and 21 says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who they were. Now, Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, which is primarily a Gentile church where they were located in the Roman world, was a crossroads of trade, and it was primarily Gentiles that were a part of this church. And they understood what it was like to be alienated from God. They were alienated from God because of their sin. They were born in that sin. We are all born with a sin nature. And their sin separated them from God. But not only was their sin separating them from God, but they were alienated by culture. Because they were Gentiles, they couldn't go to the only place that they knew of before Paul, before Jesus, uh, before... uh, who is it? It's Epaphras came and shared with them the truth. The only place they knew to go to find God was at the temple, but they were excluded from the temple. They couldn't get in even to worship God there because they were Gentiles. If they wanted to get in to talk to God, to be made right with God, they had to become a Jew, which meant they had to do this and that and jump through this hoop and go through this one and do this and do that and do that until finally, yes, you've now uh, checked all the boxes, you are now a Jew. But even then, if they could go through and worship God in a different way, they still had to go through the priest. It wasn't the same. They couldn't just go to God. They were alienated because of their sin, but they were also alienated by their culture. They couldn't get to God. Not only were they alienated, but Paul says they were hostile in their mind. They didn't even want to get to God. Their mind was warring against God. They didn't want to come to him. They were separated from him. They were alienated from him by culture, by their sin. Their mind warred against God. They didn't want to be close to him. 
They were estranged from him both physically and spiritually, and that chasm of sin they just couldn't cross. They couldn't get over it. And at their core, they were warring against God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That was their heart. That's naturally who they were. But that's the same thing for you and me. That's exactly how we are, the Bible says, before Christ. We are alienated from him. Everything about us alienates ourselves from who God is. Our minds war against God. We are hostile in our hearts and in our minds, and then we act on that, doing evil deeds because of what our brain, what our heart, the true us on the inside is directing us and driving us to do. We don't always like to think of this, though. We don't like to think about the fact that our hearts are desperately sick. We always want to follow along with those songs that say, listen to your heart. That's usually a terrible idea. Don't listen to your heart. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? But we think, okay, you know, I'm not really all that bad. We like to look at ourselves and think, you know, I really try very hard to be honest at work. I try really hard to do the speed limit. Um, I'm, I try to be the best um, mom, the best dad that I can be for my kids. I try to be a good spouse. You know, I'm just trying to do my best. And we, we like to put ourselves on this scale a goodness scale, but usually that's tipped in our favor, so it's kind of leaning in our direction, and we're, we're excluding or taking away from the idea of just who God is and his goodness and what his word says, the truth of his word, that we are desperately sick and in need of a savior. And I'm thankful for what Paul starts verse 21 with, where he says, you who once were. That's the old reality, who you once were. That's the reality they once lived in, but it's not where they live anymore. You who once were, that's the past, that's gone. If you're a believer sitting here this morning, you probably remember what your past was. You can look back at that past and remember, that was my reality. That's where I lived, but you don't live there anymore. You, some of you have absolutely incredible stories of how God took you from where you were, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and have brought you in to this new reality. And as a kid growing up, I always, I'm from pastor's family, my grandfather's a pastor, I got saved at four. I'm sitting there listening to all these testimonies that people would give, and I'm sitting there thinking, if only I had a testimony like that. That's an awesome testimony. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I don't, I've got none of that. I was never addicted to drugs. I never was part of a small arms cartel in Tijuana. Um, I never robbed a bank. You know, I had none of that. Like, I did stuff like disobeying my mom and, and being mean to my brother and you know, in high school, driving way too fast. You know, I never had anything really cool for a testimony. Um, and, I, you know, I didn't really know what I, was, what I was wanting, you know, as I'm thinking about that. And now that I look back, I'm thinking, well, I'm glad I don't have that. But if you really think about it, right at the heart of this, whether you are, in your past, you were a murderer, or you just have really angry thoughts, and you hate people, you think about somebody, and you think, I hate that person. That's the same thing in God's eyes. 
That's exactly the same thing. Now, consequences are extremely different for killing somebody and hating somebody. But the reality is, in God's eyes, it is exactly the same. It is just as serious because it is against an absolutely holy and perfect God. It doesn't matter in God's eyes that without Christ, if you were that kid in high school who was the worst kid in the entire school and the police department was the place where everybody knew your name, or you were that perfect kid in Sunday school that every Sunday school teacher was just waiting for you to finally graduate into their class. You knew all the right answers. You helped the other kids who needed help. You were the perfect kid. You never missed any Sundays. You knew all the answers, but you were still without Christ. The end is the same. Our sin is so serious because it is against the character and nature of who God is. God gave John a picture into heaven in Revelation. And here's what John saw. He saw angels surrounding the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Our brains can't even fathom the depth of who God is, how different he is from us, how flawed and how rotten to the core we are before Christ, and how holy and perfect God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Our sin is serious, and it's deserving of an eternal punishment. That was their reality. That was our reality before Christ. That's where we lived, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But that's not our reality anymore. That's who we were. But this is who you are. Let's move on to verse uh, 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's now reconciled. And we're just going to pause right there. You have been reconciled to God. You have been made right with God. There's no more hostility between you and God. You've been brought near to God because of what Jesus has done for you. That's your reality now. That was your reality. You were alienated from him, but this is your reality. That's your old address. You don't live there anymore. You've forwarded your mail, you've moved out, you've gotten all your stuff. This is where you live now. This is your reality. You've been reconciled. Jesus did that. He did that for you. He reconciled you. You are separated from God because of your sin. You are separated by your culture, by the very nature of who you were. There was nothing you could do to get through that that ocean of sin, that chasm that separated you from Jesus, from God the Father, from the one who made you and the one who loves you dearly. But he did it for you. He made that way that your sins could be forgiven, that you could be welcomed into his family, not just welcomed in as a guest, but as an heir. We are joint heirs with Christ. And that blows me away every time I think about that. We are joint heirs with Christ. I mean, that's crazy. But it's reality. It's who he says we are. And we just celebrated Easter. 
what an awesome, what an awesome uh, holiday to remember. It's more than just a holiday. Just the way that salvation was made. That way was made for you and me. He physically died on that cross. He physically rose again, having taken all of God's righteous anger on himself and taking all of that, paying that price and then rising triumphantly, physically rising triumphantly from the grave, having totally and completely paid for our sin. And not because we deserved it. There was nothing that we could have done to deserve the salvation, to deserve what Jesus did for us. Here's what Romans 5.8 says. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. He did that for you and for me. He didn't wait for you to go clean yourself up. He didn't wait for you to go back into the past, take care of all this other messy stuff over here that you've not dealt with for years, and once you took care of all of this, then you could come to him, and then there, you've got salvation. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still living in that old reality, he died for us. He made the way of salvation that we might be redeemed, we might be reconciled and have a new reality. Not to live there anymore in that old reality, but to live in this new reality. And it's nothing we've earned. It's nothing that we have earned on our own through our own merit, anything that we've done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith, This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And for sake of time, I, I can't read through all of it, but go home. You do have homework now. Read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'll let you write that down. I wanted to read the whole thing, but we're going to, if I, if I keep going and I read every passage that I wanted to, um, you, you'd look at the timing for Mark's sermons and say, when is he coming back from vacation? So go ahead and read that for yourself. Now, Paul here makes very uh, clear statements about Jesus physically coming, physically dying in his body on the tree. He talks about Jesus's physical body. Because there in the Colossian church, they were dealing with Gnostic scholars. So that was a system of belief where they were located. There was all kinds of belief systems that were coming through Colossae, just because of where they were in the Roman world, where they were on trade routes. So all kinds of different beliefs that were coming through. And somehow this Gnostic faith had snuck into the Colossian church or was trying to sneak into the Colossian church. And just very briefly, some of the things that they believed, they believed that matter was evil. So your physical body was evil. The idea that God would come in the flesh was laughable to them. Couldn't come in the flesh. He couldn't, he couldn't come. When in reality, that is the greatest miracle of all time. Packer talks about that in Knowing God. I'm going to plug, I think I put a plug in for that last time. I'm going to do that again this time, too. Um, the ladies' study is working through that on Wednesday nights, I believe, right now. He, he makes the, the argument that the incarnation is the greatest miracle of all time. God, perfect God, holy, holy, holy God Almighty, becomes man without losing any of who he was as God. So he doesn't lose anything to become man. He's 100% God, but then becomes 100% man. 
I can't completely describe that to you or explain it, but it's true. And if that is a reality, then none of the rest of this is a problem for us. If you can't grasp that or can't accept that by faith, that, that that's a reality, that God, 100% God, became 100% man without losing any of who he was as God, if you can't grasp that, then the rest of this starts to fall apart. It is the greatest miracle of all time. But the Gnostics wanted to say, you know, matter is evil, your flesh is evil. There's no way that God could have come in the flesh. So Jesus really wasn't who he said he was. They also said that there is no way to really get close to God to know God. You know, you really, just, you really couldn't know God. If you were going to know God, they said you had to be enlightened. And of course, with every religion, you have to jump through this hoop and that hoop and go through this and go through that to be able to be enlightened. And Paul is combating that. Somehow it had snuck in, and Paul is wanting to just totally remove that, push that out of the way, and make sure that he addresses that, that Jesus did physically come in a physical body. And that's why he was so, it was so important that we have those first, those five verses, 15 through 20, leading up to this, and that exultant view of who Jesus is, that then as we move through these next verses, that's who we have in mind, not who they were hearing about who Jesus was, not who just on their own they were thinking about who Jesus was, but the reality of who he is. And because of who he is, that changes who we are. And he says, you are holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. What an incredibly different description than what was in verse 21. What a total contrast from what we were, our old reality, to who we are, this new reality. No longer estranged from God, no longer warring against God in your mind, no longer doing deeds in opposition to God according to what our thoughts led us to do. Look who you are now described as in Christ. You are holy, not holy in the sense of perfect in action, because we're still, still stuck in this body of sin. We still have this body of sin. We're leaving, living in a world of sin. Creation is groaning to someday be redeemed. Our bodies groan too, but not perfect in our bodies, but perfect as a sacrifice. That's the idea behind holy here in this passage. We are perfect as a sacrifice presented to God, where we were alienated from God. We couldn't come into the presence of God because of our sin and because of the character and nature of who we were. Now, because of what Jesus has done for us, we are holy. We are brought into his presence as a sacrificial lamb. The Levitical law is what's in mind here. That lamb that was to be brought as a sacrifice had to be absolutely spotless and pure and clean, the perfect example of what a lamb was. And then that lamb was brought into the presence of God. And that lamb was sacrificed. Romans 12.1 says that we're to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's who we are to be. That's how we're described. We're described as holy, a perfect sacrifice to be brought to him. Do you feel holy this morning? Okay, so all right, we're on the same page then. I didn't feel so terribly holy as I was getting up this morning, and I didn't feel so terribly holy as I'm driving my car here, and somebody's cutting me off, and I'm driving white-knuckled to church to go worship Jesus. But thank God for his mercy and his grace 
toward us. He sees us as holy. He doesn't look down and see my sin. He doesn't look down and see my pride or my anger. He doesn't see me driving frantically to church to convict me of my anger or my frustration. He sees me as holy. And when God looks down at us, he doesn't look down to convict us of our sin. Do you know what he sees? When he looks down to see us and sees us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees this. Another passage for you to take home and to do some homework on is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. I'm just going to read verse 21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what he sees. When he looks down and he sees you and me, when we are in Christ, we are holy. A lamb offered to be sacrificed, a living sacrifice, and we bear his righteousness. That's what he sees. He doesn't see your sin to bring it back up to convict you of something that you did in the past. You are a new creation. That passage starts out with talking about us being a new creation. We are made new in Christ, and we bear his righteousness. We bear the image of his son. And if only we woke up every single day and we lived that out, how different would your day be if you woke up and you lived out that reality that you are a new creation, you are holy, brought into the presence of God as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, and you bear the righteousness of Christ. What kind of a difference would that make for your day? Could be incredible. So how about the other descriptions of us? Not only are we holy, he says we're holy, but we're also blameless. We are innocent in the sight of God, both physically and morally. There's no charge that can be brought against you that's going to stand. You're blameless. Because of your work? Is it because of anything that we did that makes us blameless in the sight of God? Absolutely not. There's nothing that we could do to make ourselves blameless, but that's how he sees us. God sees us as blameless. And often we think, God, but don't you, know, don't you know who I am, God? Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know where I've been? How can you see me as blameless? How can he describe me as that after all that I've done, after everywhere I've been, everything that I was? How can he do that? Well, here's what 1 Peter 2.24 says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. He bore your sin. He paid the price. You are blameless because he took your sin on himself and he paid for it. There's nothing else that you can do to earn your salvation. It's by grace. There's no way that you could have earned your salvation. There's no way you could have gone back and cleaned yourself up enough to finally be able to stand in the presence of God and say, I'm blameless, apart from the fact that Jesus did that for you. He paid the price for that sin, and he says you're blameless because you bear his righteousness. He did it. also says you're above reproach. The, the idea behind being above reproach is that you're so good as to preclude any possibility of criticism. Again, it's not based on your own righteousness. It's based on what he did on your behalf, based on his righteousness that you now wear 
you bear the image of the Son. That's what God sees. He looks down at you, and he doesn't see your sin to convict you. And too often what happens is we hold on to guilt because we think, I know what I was, and we hold on to this guilt, and we don't see ourselves as holy or blameless or above reproach. We hold on to that guilt of this is what I was before. How can God see me as any different? And guilt is a pretty nasty thing. All of us have experienced guilt. Maybe you're feeling guilt this morning. I don't know. But guilt can be awful for our minds. It can make you feel depressed, anxious, just feeling down. But it's horrible for your body, too. Uh, it can give you sleeping disorders like insomnia, give you indigestion, and upset stomach, fatigue, muscle pain, lethargy, just this overall heaviness on your body. That's what, that's what guilt does to us. When we don't let go of our past and we don't see ourselves in the way that God sees us, whether we think we deserve it or not, we don't deserve it. That's how Jesus sees us. That's how he made us. In his sight, you are holy. You are blameless. You are above reproach. And he's never going to go back to your sin to drag that back up, to convict you of that sin, to make you feel guilty about it. Here's what Psalm 103:12 says. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. David wrote that. And David had a lot of things that he needed cast as far as the east is from the west. Adultery and murder are just two things that we can mention there. And there's probably a whole other list as we read through the life of David that we could come up with. He had sins that needed to be cast as far as the east is from the west. You can't get much further than that. Now, God sees, he knows who you were, but he's never going to bring that sin back up to convict you, to make you guilty. Because in his eyes, you are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach. If only we lived that way. If only we took that reality of who we are, who Christ says we are, and we filtered everything else we do through that. We woke up and we looked at ourselves in the mirror and said, in Jesus' eyes, in God's eyes, because of the work that Jesus did for me, I am holy, I am blameless, and I am above reproach. How would that change how you interact with your family? How would that change how you interact with the people that you see at work or you interact with over lunch or you're driving beside on your way to wherever you're going? How would that change that? What a totally different picture than how we often view ourselves. Often what happens is we wake up in the morning already feeling defeated by the day, tired, worn out, frustrated, but that's not who we are. He made us holy, blameless, and above reproach. What a contrast between what we saw at the beginning. We were alienated. That was the reality. We were alienated, separated from God because of our sin. Now we're holy, brought into the presence of God as a living sacrifice, holy before him, to be offered to him as that lamb without spot or blemish. We were hostile in mind. At our very core, we were warring against God and losing very badly. But we were warring against God in our mind. But now we're blameless because of what Jesus has done for us. We were doing evil. Our deeds were evil. We were acting on those evil, hostile thoughts. But now we're above reproach. He's never going to take all those past things that we had done, drag them back up to convict us. 
what a total drastic difference between who we were, our old reality, to our new reality, who we are now. That's where you used to live. This is where you live now because of what Jesus has done for you. We have a new reality. How can we not live in that every single day? How can we not want to walk in that, to continue in that, to stay in that, to remain in that? And that's really the heart of where Paul is getting to as he moves into verse 23. So we know who we were. We now know who we are. But who must we now be? Here's what he says in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in creation, in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul's getting here to the sense that not if, he's not saying if you continue in the faith as if there's a, there's a real possibility you might not continue in the faith. It's not some kind of warning or a challenge. He's using if here, and this phrase is kind of used in the same way that hope is used in the rest of Scripture. So he says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. So hope is often used not as a level of uncertainty looking forward, but it's really looking at things more as a confident expectation of what will be. So Paul's not using this as some kind of warning to make sure you stay on track, make sure you continue in this. It's important that we do, but Paul's not using this to scold them. It's more of that hopeful expectation, that, that expecting of what will be in the same way we think of the word hope. And that they stay stable and steadfast. And if we look at chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, which we're going to come to, uh, hopefully sooner than later, as we continue to preach through Colossians, it says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We're to walk in him. We're to remain faithful. That's an ongoing action. Every day we are walking in him, staying in him, remaining in him, stable and steadfast. Now, Paul's using an architectural term here, uh, stable and steadfast. Uh, Colossae was in an area that was just earthquakes uh, quite frequently, so they had to make sure that their buildings were stable and steadfast. And Wearsby likes to describe this as banking your faith earthquake-proof. So you are stable and you are steadfast. You're not easily pushed off of your foundation, that foundation of your faith, of who Jesus is, who God the Father says he is, and who you are because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of what his word says. You are stable and steadfast in that. You're not easily shaken. And again, Paul's not using this as some kind of uh, warning that you keep going, you keep fighting, you keep so you don't fall off that faith wagon because this was his work to begin with. Your salvation was his work that you accepted as a free gift. You're going to have times in your life where you look back and say, Father, I wandered, I stepped away and I wandered away from you at that time, but by your grace, you never let go of me. Salvation is not our work. So I can't lose my salvation by my work. It's his work. Thank goodness for his grace and his mercy being patient with us as we walk through this life. And we are sanctified daily, but we are going to one day be glorified in his presence and in his 
eyes, in God's eyes, because of the work of Jesus, we are holy, blameless, and we are above reproach. Paul's saying this as a hopeful expectation, an expectance that they will continue to walk in the faith. He's the one who saved you. He's the one who rescued you. He redeemed you. He reconciled you. And he's the one who's keeping you. But stay in him, stable and steadfast. And it's this hope of the gospel that Paul has become a minister. It's his hope. It's a hope that he has. The same hope that the Colossians received. This hope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that not only did he rescue them and save them, that he redeemed them, he reconciled them, but that he's coming back for them one day. And they're to remain in him, to abide in him. Just like in Psalm 1, we see that tree that is planted by the rivers of water that bears its fruit. Or you see in John 15, the branch that is connected to the vine. And it's getting its life source through that vine. And the life is coming through it. And then it bears fruit. Further, just reinforcing whose you are. As you are remaining stable and steadfast in him, continuing in the faith, you're going to see that fruit produced in your life, not by your own effort and your striving and your own going and your own doing, but because his life is flowing through you. It will be impossible to hide who you are and whose you are because his life is coming through you and you are to remain stable and steadfast in that hope of the gospel. And that's why Paul became a minister, because of that hope of the gospel. And we see him in Romans talking about the fact that he was specifically sent as a minister to the Gentiles. You don't have a chance to read everything for us, uh, but if you take a look at Romans 15, 15 through 16, that's the hope that he had, that God had called him to be a minister to the Gentiles. And I'm so glad that he did, because that's you and I. I don't know if anyone here is Jewish or anyone watching on is Jewish, but for the rest of us, we are the Gentiles. We are the ones that he brought the message, the good news of the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ to. He brought it to the, to the world where he was. He brought it to us through his writing, God speaking to him and through him, and we get to read that. And I'm so thankful for that, that hope of the gospel. Now, we started this morning, and we looked at a character comparison of two people, one man. We're going to do another one here this morning. We're going to take another, another character comparison. The first person we're going to look at here, this man was born into a mixed family. So in his era, it, was, it could be seen as a setback that your dad was from one region of the world and your mom was from another region of the world. Uh, so mixed family, but he didn't let this keep him from achieving anything. So he continued to just do his best. He resolved in his heart he was going to be the best at what he, what he wanted to do, and that was to be a religious leader. So he was going to be the absolute best. So when he went into school, he fought hard. He pushed harder. He learned more. He studied longer, and then he excelled. And he says later on in life that he was above and beyond many his own age. He was so zealous for his faith. Nothing was going to get in his way. So zealous was he that even when he heard about other people who had a different way of life, they had a different religion, they had a different uh, whatever they were going to follow. If it was different from what he believed, he was going to hunt them down. So he did. He hunted them down. He threw them in prison. He had some of them killed. 
He went to far off lands to find these people, but he was miserable. Second person, this man ended his life in prison. He was executed by the Roman government. This man had also been the best that he could be, striving, fighting, but then realized something was wrong, and his life totally took a turn in the opposite direction. He was a world traveler in his part of the world. He traveled extensively. He wrote extensively. And again, he ended his life in a prison, then being executed. But he was able to write, to live as Christ, to die is gain. And we're talking about Paul, who wrote this letter to the Colossians, who was Saul. His old reality was Saul. He looked really good on the outside. He crossed all the T's, he dotted all the I's, he checked all the boxes. He looked absolutely perfect. A Hebrew of Hebrews, the perfect example of a Pharisee. But in his heart, he was still alienated from God, still hostile in his mind, still doing evil deeds. Even if everything on the outside looked great, in God's eyes, he was still just as alienated, hostile, and, and warring against God as those Colossians were, those Gentiles. But then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He couldn't avoid him. Jesus was right there, fell off his horse, there on the ground, looking up, gazing into the face of Jesus. And there's Jesus changing his life for forever. And after that encounter with Jesus, a total turnaround, total 180, no longer alienated, no longer hostile in mind doing evil deeds, but now holy, blameless, and above reproach. So much so he changed his name. No longer Saul, now he's Paul. That old reality, that's not where he lives anymore. He lives in this new reality. For you and I, if we've accepted Christ as our Savior, that's your old reality. You don't live there anymore. You don't go back there looking for mail. You know, it's been forwarded on. You don't live there anymore. You live in this new reality. How can we not walk in that reality every single day? Let's pray. And we'll have the ushers come forward at that time too, along with the worship team. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus. Thank you for passages like this, Lord, where we can have this exultant view of who Jesus is and what he's done, and to remember the reality of who we were, but who you made us to be. That's our reality. It's not a hope. It's not a wish. It's not a, uh, somebody else's reality. It's our reality to hold on to, to grasp, to walk in every single day. I pray that we would do that, Father that we would walk in that reality of who you say we are. And because of who you say we are, we would let that change us as we interact with this world that you have placed us in. It's in your name we pray. Amen.